All right, so we are in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And tonight we're going to talk about anthropology, but not what you're thinking. <laughs> not, not anthropology like the scientific study of, of man and, and, and you know, cultures and things like that. But rather, we're going to be talking about sin, nature, or what is wrong with mankind. Why is it that people are messed up? And they are. They're messed up. But it's more complicated than that. They're not purely messed up. There's, there's also good qualities and things we see. So what's going on here? And what does the scripture teach us about who we are as people? So this is anthropology. It's an it's a, it's a area of doctrine about what mankind is. And uh, we'll be getting into that tonight, along with, of course, the gospel. Because Romans, we're going to constantly be talk, talking about the gospel, different aspects of it, different sides of it. So we are, here we are, Romans 5, 6. It says, For when we were still without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were still without strength, Christ died for us. That's us. We're the ungodly. He died for us. Now, you'd be surprised, as basic as this is, how many Christians do not even understand this concept. I have encountered Christians over and over, and you ask them, when you die, where are you going? And they say, heaven. And then you say, why? And they say, because I'm a good person. And I say, wrong. <laughs> this is wrong. You're either wrong about the heaven part or you're wrong about the good person part. But this does not work together. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Not the good people, the ungodly. My state before Christ is that I'm utterly lost. I'm completely lost. It's not just, Jesus, I need you to help me somewhat. As, as we were... Um, we were up in Utah one time. We, we did a mission trip up to Utah. And there we are. And we were talking with some, um, some representatives from BYU, Brigham Young University. And, and these guys are Mormons. And they're there to represent their theology. And so the guy who was leading our group, he gets up and he says, here's the thing. Here's how I understand Mormon theology, the Christian says to the Mormons. In Mormon theology, it's like, here's my cup. You know, my cup's half full. Like, I, I do good, but I don't do enough good to get to heaven. It's about half full. And then Jesus comes and he fills my cup the rest of the way. And so now I'm, I'm, he takes, he, you know, he fills in the slack. Now I'm good enough and now I make it. And the Mormon missionaries, the, those guys, excuse me, they were, um, they were seminary guys. They were not missionaries. And they said, yes, that's, that's what we believe. That's what we believe. And they were very happy. They were proud of this. Yes, you got it. You got it right. That's what we believe. And he goes, now here's my view as a Christian. I believe my cup is completely empty. I'm ungodly. I have problems. In fact, it's like negative space inside the cup. There's, there's sin that's got to be dealt with. It's not that I lack, just lack righteousness. I actually have sin. I'm ungodly. And then Jesus comes and he fills the cup completely up. He takes care of the whole thing for me. And then I'm saved. And the Mormons looked over at him and said, yes, we believe that. Literally not realizing that these two are not possibly true at the same time. But that's the squirrely nature of Mormon theology because Mormon theology has grown over time to be more about recruiting people than teaching them clear doctrines of the church. And so they're willing to compromise and fudge the descriptions of words and things like that just to get more people in the door instead of to be clear about what they believe. So it's not just that I needed some help. That's not why Jesus died for me because I needed a little bit of help. Fill in the gap, Jesus. Fill my cup up the rest of the way. Um, and it's also not because I was wounded by others. Jesus did not die for me because other people hurt me. And I needed Jesus to die for me because of my, my father wounds, my mother wounds, or my grandpa wounds, or whatever they were. Those can be real wounds and they can seriously hurt. But that's not why I needed Jesus to die for me. I needed Jesus to die for me because of that last word in verse 6. Ungodly. My sin. That's why I needed Jesus to die. So here's where worship comes in. When I realize that Jesus died for me, the ungodly, that's me, the ungodly, that's who he died for. So if he died for me, that makes me the ungodly, right? That makes me ungodly. So I realize this and all of a sudden, I don't worship like someone who's just been helped by Jesus. I worship like a ungodly sinner who's been saved by Jesus. I worship because there's this gratitude in my heart this love for God because he first loved me while I was a sinner. Then in verse 7, he drives us home even more. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. 
Now, <clears throat> this is a principle in life. It's like just generally speaking, people typically just don't die for random other people. In fact, even when you have a righteous guy, it's rare that somebody was willing to die for this righteous man by man's standards, righteous. And then you have a good man and someone would even dare to die for them, perhaps. Now, some people think that the righteous man and the good man are two different kind of categories of people in this passage. You have the righteous man. They're like the religiously holy person who's willing to die for the religiously holy person. Um, well, scarcely, you know. But then you have just a good guy. Like, oh, he's just a good guy, man. He's like, oh, he's, I love that guy. More, maybe, maybe more people are willing to lay their lives down for him. I don't know if that's what it's saying here or not, to be honest. The point, though, is clear. When somebody says, will you die for so-and-so? You ask yourself, who are they and is it worth it? That's natural to ask yourself. Is it worth my life to be laid down for that person? Is it worth me to die for them to live? It's natural to ask this question. Now, as a Christian, you might say, I wouldn't even ask. Yes, Lord, I will lay my life. But that's because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. It's not natural. That's an unnatural work of God in your life. And that's a beautiful thing. Because you follow what Jesus has done for you. But the natural thing is to say, are they worth dying for? Well, in verse 8, he concludes this. He says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he dies for me. When I'm, what, am I a righteous man? No. Am I a good man? No. I'm a sinner. I'm a wicked sinner. And he dies for me. Why would he do this? Is it because I'm so worth it? Is it because, as I've heard someone say one time, well, God was lonely. God was lonely up in heaven. I don't know. Have you heard the doctrine of the Trinity? God has never been lonely. He's never been alone. He's three in one. There is no lack of fellowship when it's just God for all eternity. So it wasn't that he was lonely. Well, maybe what happened is God looked down from heaven. You know, he parted the clouds because that's totally how it works. And he looks down from heaven and he sees into the heart of man and he goes, oh, I see there's a layer of evil there. But you know what it is? I, I push past that layer and then I go further and there's, there's, a, there's more evil. But I keep going and I keep going and there's some selfishness and stuff. And, and I keep going past the pride, you know, past the theft and the lying and all the foul things. But way deep, deep, deep down, there's this little bit of good. And I found the good and I said, that's worth redeeming. That's worth it. No, that's really not what happened. God didn't look down into us and see and weigh in, in his mind. You have enough good that it's worth me dying for you. That's the opposite of what verses 7 and 8 are telling us. You weren't good. You weren't righteous. Christ died for you. Those things sound nice. Oh, God was lonely. Or he saw good in us. But they are lies. They're lies. And they strike at the heart of the gospel. Because what they do is they weaken the love of God. They lift us up and they bring his love down. But if I see it for what it is and I see Christ died for us as we were sinners, ungodly, wicked, evil people who rightly deserve judgment and he dies for me, all of a sudden, his love is magnified. What motive was there? It was just love. God demonstrated his own love toward us. I, I love you. Why? Because of some incredible quality in me? Is it my hair? Is it, is it, is it my, my attitude, my personality? It's my funny jokes. It's the way I can make other people smile. No, you're a sinner. I love you because I'm love. I love you because of my qualities, not because of your qualities. That's the nature of our salvation. So this is the point, right? 1 John 3, 1 puts it this way. Behold what manner of love, what kind of love, the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Now, Paul's emphasis here is on the we, in 1 John 3, 1, that we, sinners, wicked sinners, should be called children of God. Behold the love of God. God's love is magnified. It's, it's demonstrated there. So making man sinners makes God very loving. But if you try to pretend that man is good, then God becomes much less loving and man becomes more entitled. I deserve it, Lord. I'm good. I'm a good person. I deserve it. You should come and die for me or you should come and do these things for me. This is such a perfect motive. I love this because here we are in modern, okay, back then, do you really think 
popularly love was such a big deal. Like everything, it was all love songs on the radio back in Roman days. No, it was, it was all about love and compassion and all this sort of thing. This, the whole concept of love being such a big deal, I think, has been really lifted up higher because of the Christian worldview. It's not, love is not lifted up as such a high attribute in other worldviews as it is in Christianity. But that's what's so beautiful about it. God, why did you save me? If you went up to heaven and you were like, looked, and you're like, Lord, what did you see in me? What, why did you save me? And he just looks at you and says, I love you. I, it's not because I looked at you and saw that you were so grand and so wonderful. It's because I looked into my own heart and saw the love for you and that motivated me. He loves us. And then he asks us to give that kind of love to other people. Love to the undeserved. Love to the thankless. Love to those who hate us and persecute us. To actually do this. To really live out this love that God's given us. That's so powerful. So you might ask yourself, how do I know God loves me? Christ died for you. That's how you know. The cross demonstrates, according to verse 8, that this blew me away. Because I, I used to struggle. I remember thinking, how do I know God really loves me? Because sometimes I look into my heart and I don't feel like God's heart loves me. But asking my heart what's in God's heart is like one of the stupidest things I could ever do. Asking my heart what's in God's heart as if his heart is a reflection of mine. Really, I'm just dealing with natural human anxieties, natural human fears or doubts and things like this. And this is where I hold up that shield of faith. And I go, you know what? I know God loves me because he demonstrated it on the cross. The cross stands as a permanent monument to the love of God for me. Because while I was still a sinner, he, he died for me. I, I know it. It's not a doubt. It's not, it's not something I'm just hopeful about. It's, I know this. He loved me. I remember seeing uh, Passion of the Christ. Um, I, do, I do recommend watching it if you want. I don't think that you need to consider the passion like the deepest spiritual experience of your life. I think, that, though, that it was, it was very interesting to watch. And, uh, and it, it did tug at my heart, that's for sure. It doesn't have to. It's not a test of your spirituality of how emotional you get when you watch this movie. But I remember seeing the character Barabbas. You guys remember Barabbas? Barabbas was the guy that was set free and Jesus instead was crucified. And I remember being irritated because he was like yucky. It was like they cast the character perfectly. That actor, he's just like, people probably just don't like him in real life. I don't know because he's just, I'm just kidding. But, but he acted it well. Like he's just like, I mean, he's just like this evil, like icky. He's icky, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? It was like, ugh, that guy's so gross. And, his, and I'm like, that guy, they let that guy go? Man, they made Barabbas into this like villainous, like yucky. I can't stand you. You're disgusting. Well, that's me. This guy was let go and, and Jesus was crucified in his place, so to speak. Well, that's me. I'm not like, oh, Lord, I got a couple problems, but you say, but no, I am, I am like that Barabbas guy. Compared to God's holiness, there's something disgusting inside of my own sinful nature. It breaks my heart, but it's true. That's me. And he died for me. What incredible love he has. So our world today, they, uh, they often think that man is basically good. Is man basically good? Well, if, if man is basically good, the gospel's not true. If the gospel's true, then man is not basically good. This changes things, you know. According to the Bible, we're children of wrath. We're ungodly. That's who, who he died for. Um, now, that this doesn't mean, um, I, I now, I don't want to go overboard with this concept, it doesn't mean that we're not moral. We're also moral creatures. Like, I'm aware of what's right and wrong. And I even sometimes try to do what's right. And you might find unsafe people that, that, that seem to be living good lives. But like Ecclesiastes says, it says in Ecclesiastes 7 that there is no one who constantly does what is good. And that's the real issue. It's an offense against God's holiness when we sin like this. So man is complicated. Man is is moral, but yet man does not follow the morals that we know. We don't, we don't stay consistent. In fact, the only people who think they stay consistent with morals is the ones who invent their own new morality. <laughs> and they go, well, I always do what I think is right, except that what you think is right is basically whatever you do, <laughs> which, is, which is nice and self-serving, but, but no. Man is, is kind of complicated, it turns out. And the anthropology of man, based on scripture, is we're, we're sort of a complicated creature, made in the image of God, yet we're suffering this issue of rebellion and sin and sin nature. So we'll get more into this as we keep going. Verse 9, it says this. 
Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I think this is talking in general, these verses, about the security we have in Christ. I look back and I see how he died for me in that ungodly state, and that assures me my future salvation. But there's interesting things that are in here. Um, verse 9 says that we were justified by his blood. Specifically by his blood. It, it, it could say anything there. God could have had anything written there. The Holy Spirit could have inspired it anyway. But specifically by his blood. Why do I bring this up? Because there are some uh, more liberal, and I'm not talking about politics here, but about theology. Liberal, more you know, churches and liberal theologians who think that Jesus, his, his life was an example and his death was an example of love, but it didn't actually purchase anything for us. It was just an example. What we can say, if nothing else, is we can say it's true that Jesus gave an example, but to reduce his sacrifice to merely being an example is to say the Bible's completely wrong. Is to say you're not even, you're not following the Bible anymore. You have your own, you have a cult. You have your own version of Christianity based upon what you like and don't like. And that's unfortunate. Um, to reduce Jesus' sacrifice to an example is, is to remove the sacrifice because examples aren't sacrifices. <laughs> there is no sacrifice then. It was his blood. And the Old Testament sacrifices foreshadow this. It's substitutionary. We, that's what we call it, penal substitutionary atonement. He brings me into oneness with God by coming in my place and paying the penalty, penal, the penalty for my sin on the cross. Substitutionary because he's in my place instead of me doing it. And it's atonement. It brings me into oneness with God. So that's that doctrine, penal substitutionary atonement. The scriptures are saying this. It's certainly saying this in verses 9 and 10. It says it's by his blood. It says that we were enemies of God. In other words, everyone's not okay with God. There's something wrong in our relationship. We were reconciled to God. Well, you don't have to be reconciled with just examples. <laughs> you need a sacrifice. And we were, in verse 9, saved from God's wrath. Second Corinthians um, kind of brings this in and reinforces it, this idea of it being a substitutionary penal thing. And the reason why I bring this up is because right now, modern times, this doctrine's under attack. Um, and there's there's always, the, the Christian church throughout the centuries, there's like this remnant, you know, that stays faithful to the word pretty much, right? And then there's there's these offshoots, and sometimes it's the descendants of this group that sort of go off weird, and we have to constantly be reclaiming the scriptures and re, re-getting, reforming back to the scriptures. Every generation has to do it, I think. Um, but 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, it says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, and listen what it says, We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, that's Jesus being sin for me. I mean, that's pretty extreme words. Jesus was sin he knew no sin, but he, he, he was sin. He made him to be sin for me. That's, that's, um, that's his substitutionary sacrifice for me. But the, um, the application that Paul's giving us in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 5, it's really neat. The application is this. There's no wrath for me. The wrath of God poured out on Christ, on the cross, there is no longer wrath for me. That's why he says, if he was going to offer his son, well then, so we shall be saved through his life. He repeats that verse, that phrase twice, we shall be saved. What's he saying, shall be saved? I thought I was saved. Well, the scripture talks about being saved, how we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. It uses it in all three of these contexts in the New Testament. I am saved, positionally I'm in Christ. I'm being saved, that's my sanctification that continually happens throughout my life. And then I am going to be saved, as in when the day of judgment comes, I won't be condemned. So if you were saved, you will be saved. This is, this is, these are two pieces of this, two bread pieces of the same sandwich. You know, they go together. You've got, you've got the grilled cheese. It's got two pieces of bread. Grilled cheese sounds good right now. So Romans, I think Romans, the book of Romans, if we, if we, if you sort of scoot back and look at it, big picture, it takes you first to total insecurity, you have no security because you're like, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. We're doomed. We're condemned. We're unrighteous. From there to total security. Ah, but Jesus, if he came and died for me while I was in that state, 
How much more will he keep me? How much more will he save me in that final day? I'm securing Christ. I'm not going to have to fill half this cup. He did it all. And that's a beautiful thing. So he takes us to this like sense of confidence about God's plan for our future, this security in our own walk with the Lord, this confidence in our prayer life, this confidence and this comfort when you go to bed tonight and you realize you're still not sanctified, you're still not perfect, you still fail, but you're in Christ. And that's, that's all you can ever offer to God is Christ, his righteousness, not yours. So we look to the past to be certain of the future. Um, we look to the cross to be certain of our eternal life in the future. So if he saved at me when I was still a sinner, well, then he'll see my salvation through to the end. I, I think another way to put this is the surest proof of the second coming is the first coming. The surest proof of the future plans of God are the fulfillment of the, of the past plans of God that I can be assured of Christ's return because he came initially. So this is, this is neat. This is theology impacting our hearts. Do you, do you sense it? Do you sense it? How, how This seems to be God's method. Is it? He comes and he enters sometimes into our hearts through our heads. That's at least my experience as I'm in, digging in the scripture. Sometimes my heart's not really listening and my head sometimes gets the key to that emotion. And so God gives us the theology that gives me confidence in my trial and comfort in the pain I'm going through. That gives me... Um, my, my heart, the ability to recognize God's love, whereas before I was looking at myself to think, what, what does God feel? Which is kind of strange. Um, the theology that changes our security in God's grace. I'm in Christ, man. Oh, I just fall upon his grace and rest. The theology that changes my hope for etern- my eternal future, my view of mankind. I no longer view people as the world often does, and where we sort of play this game like we pretend we're all good. Um, I also don't think that everything that man does is evil and every motive is bad. You know, if, if a mother sacrifices herself to save her baby, I don't think that that was an evil act. Uh, some people, they feel as though they have to demonize that behavior. Like everything every human does outside of Christ is evil. I, personally, I, I, don't, I don't see that and I don't think the scripture forces me to say that. Um, but even an evil being can do something good. <laughs> um, so... So yes, it's changing our view of mankind and it's changing our appreciation of God's love. So verse 11, let's keep reading. Romans 5, 11. And not only that, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This, not only that phrase, this is not the first time it's come up in, in Romans, in Romans 5 in particular. So in 5, 2, he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then in 5, 3, he's like, not only that, but we rejoice in tribulation. We have joy even though we're in pain and suffering. And then here in verse 11, he's like, and not only that, we rejoice in God. And these are all very different things. And you could look back to see the, the whole the concepts as they go. But think about this. Rejoicing in God is not the same as just having joy because of, you know, something that God has done for you. I'm actually rejoicing in God. I think maybe parents can understand this. Have you ever had it where your, your kid does something that just brings you joy and you're rejoicing in them? There's something, there's something in, you're rejoicing in them, so to speak. This is, this is I'm rejoicing in God. His, his, his character, his power, his plan, his love, and I'm rejoicing because of it. I'm just the recipient. Like I'm just watching it and then going, whoa, and brings me joy. That's the idea. So I'm not just rejoicing in the blessings. I'm rejoicing in the blesser. That's the difference. That's the difference. If I was to give you a a, a million dollars, if I was to give you a brand new Lamborghini Countach, isn't that that the one? When I was a kid, that was the one. It was the Lamborghini Countach. Not even sure what that looks like, to be honest. But, but, But if I was to give you some, you know, amazing, this amazing mansion somewhere, you know, this beautiful house and all this stuff, and then after I gave you all these things, you just saw me walking down the street. Would you be like, oh, there's Mike. I mean, it would bless you. I'm not trying to say you're, you're carnal here, but it, you would be like, wow, that was, you gave me some pretty amazing big things. I'm re- I, I, you might rejoice in me somewhat. But God's given you so much more. He's taken your sin upon himself. He's died for, your, for your, your, the consequences of your sin and your rebellion against him. He's promised you eternal hope. He's given you... Uh, some comfort and some courage through trials and through pains and he'll take you into his presence for all eternity where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore 
do you rejoice in him yet? Is he your joy? Does he bring you peace? Does he bring you comfort? So you rejoice in God. This is the key to rejoicing. It's in Philippians 4.4. You might have missed this when you read Philippians. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, how do I rejoice always? You do it in the Lord. He's your joy. Him, his person, his character, his love towards you, his, the things he's done for you. It's just who he is gives me joy. This is the key to always rejoicing. With the right view of God, knowing his love in God, his love in Christ for me, excuse me. How can I not rejoice? How can I not have joy in my heart towards the Lord? And if you don't, you need to pray. God, get me through this spiritual battle. Get me through this, this shade that is upon my eyes, not seeing your glory for who you are. Carry me through this thing because I need to rejoice in you always. I'm literally commanded to in scripture. And that's to highlight that something's wrong if I can't do it right now today. Rejoice in God. The unsaved cannot rejoice in God. Not really, not truly, only in some sense of deception. But the reconciled, they can rejoice in God. I like how it says in verse 11, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I'm reconciled now. Like my heart, my life is reconciled already. It's already happened. Not just that I, I will one day be joined to God in a greater sense, but right now I'm already reconciled. The reconciliation's already happened. One of my favorite worship songs back in the day, we haven't done it in years and years, but it was just, I am redeemed. We'd sing, uh, and a lot of you probably don't know, but it was, I am redeemed, I am redeemed, washed and clean, I am redeemed. A lot of complicated words. Deep, deep theology in that song. And then it would just sing, you know, he lifts me up, he fills my cup, he lifts me up. I like the chorus. It was really, it was more wordy than the rest. It was sing hallelujah, sing hallelujah, sing hallelujah, Christ is Lord. I love that song. I just love singing I'm redeemed, washed and clean. I have received the, rec the reconciliation. I'm just so blessed by that because I know my sin. And I know it's paid. Verse 12, he goes on, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And now we're getting into the anthropology of it, right? Now we're getting into the theology about man, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of what we call the fall. Although maybe it would be more appropriate to call it the rebellion. Because a fall almost implies a, it was passively man just kind of, oh, I fell. You know, it's like, oh, I fell into adultery. Like, no, you jumped into it. Like, you don't fall into this kind of stuff. So the doctrine of the fall or the rebellion of man. So here's the doctrine, verse 12. It's one man, that's Adam, through whom sin entered the world. So in the pre-fall state, man, man, meaning just Adam and Eve here, they're sinless. In fact, Genesis describes them as being naked and unashamed. That is, there was no reason for shame. There was no reason for embarrassment. There was no reason for, for the blushing of the cheeks, you know, because there were no foul motives and there was no sin nature. There was no tendency towards sin. It wouldn't occur to them to do something wrong. They would have no desire for it. And they were in relationship with God. They're in the garden where this is a special place on the earth where God is walking with man. So they're in close relationship with God and in great relationship with each other without sin. But then they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that was the that was the act of rebellion, and that through that sin entered the world. Sin entered the world. Now some people they get mad about the tree. I've heard it before. Have you? And then God put this one tree in the middle of the garden, and then they describe the tree as though they know what it looked like. <laughs> and I've heard them like, oh, and it looked better. It was more beautiful than all the other trees. Really? What Bible are you reading? This is some special. I hate God version, like where you get his like add details to, to feed your irritation. <laughs> like, is that what you do? I don't know. But really the issue with the tree is this. It was about free will. It was about God giving them an opportunity to choose not to, not to obey him or to choose to rebel. They had no sin nature. It's not like everywhere they looked, they thought of sinful things to do. There was just one thing that they were told not to do. I don't think anything even would have occurred to them. Any wicked things would have even come up in their mind. No desire whatsoever to do it. But there's this one tree. God says, don't do that. That's the one thing, don't do that. So by eating of the tree, they're saying, God, 
I'm ignoring what you say. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I choose. I'm going to go against your will. And through that, sin entered the world. So it wasn't just one sin. It was the, it was the, um, it was the wedge that opened the door that brought in sin to the world, to the world, to all of men. And it says, and death through sin. Thus, death spread to all men because all sin. So Adam is our representative. He's the first man. And, and all of us are literally physically related to this, to this man. We inherit his nature. And that nature is sin nature. It's a fallen nature. So we're kind of a complicated being. I'm made in the image of God. Yet I have this rebellion inside of me. So it's, it, is, it is complicated. The results of the fall were sin entering the world and death. Sin and death. Sin and death. You know, you rebel against God and then it brings death. Um, spiritual and physical, separation from God, all these sorts of things come in. And then it spreads to all men. Everybody has this. And ch chapter 7, I think, gets into this sin nature in more detail. When he, when he describes, oh, wretched man that I am. Um, why do I, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. And it explains this, this thing that, for me, when I read Romans 7 and really looked at it, I thought, where else do we find such a perfect description of the inner battle of, of, of mankind than Romans 7? Um, right here in the Christian Bible and in the Christian worldview. I don't see it in other beliefs. Um, other beliefs, I don't think, explain the way things are very well. But Christianity seems to get, hit the nail right on the head. So this is important, right? This is how, we, how things got this way. This means that our theology should tell us that this world is not pristine, this world is not as it was created. So anyone complaining about God, saying, why is the world the way it is? They're ignoring that Christianity actually accounts for this, saying, we are experiencing the post-rebellion world with sin and pain and suffering, and it's temporary. God will eventually restore. In the meantime, he's saving people out of this thing for that future kingdom. And so that's... It's kind of like uh, getting mad at God for the way the world is now. It's kind of like um, getting mad at, uh, at somebody because their car is all smashed up after a car accident. And be like, well, how much did you pay for that car? $15,000. Why would you pay $15,000 for that piece of junk? Look at it. It's all beat up and smashed. You can't even drive it anymore. Well, it wasn't like that when I bought it. You know, <laughs> We have to take into account like there was a big car accident, so to speak, in the Garden of Eden. And we're all experiencing the after effects of that. So verse 13 it says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned, ruled from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, I've, I've tried to think about verse 13. I mean, that's really interesting. For until the law, sin was in the world. We get that. The law is the law of Moses. And, and until then, it, sin was still in the world. But sin's not imputed when there is no law. So the, the idea is that people aren't guilty when they have no awareness of the guilt that they're committing. Um, I think, my, my personal opinion, is that maybe verse 13 is like, like what Paul has done earlier in Romans, where he, he, um, he takes the thing he expects you to say against him, and he puts it in the text, and then he answers it right after. And the reason why is because I feel like verse 14 is the answer to verse 13. Yeah, but, you know, why, why do people die... Before the law of Moses, why would they die? Well, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whom had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So let me explain it a little bit better for you. Um, does no law mean no sin? Well, if no law means no sin, then why did people die? Why did people die? And in fact, if that's the case, the worst thing you could do is tell people something they're doing is wrong because now they're going to die. But that's not the world we live in. That's not how things work. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's what Paul's saying in verse 14. Because people do know. Paul uses the word law in a couple different ways in the book of Romans. One is the law of Moses. The other one is that, remember, remember Romans 2? Remember Romans 3? That Gentiles, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness with them, accusing or excusing them. Meaning that there is nobody who's really without the law. They might be without Moses' written law, but they're not without the law written in their hearts. So death reigned because there's always been a law around. That's why I, I tend to think verse 13 might be the, the complainer that he's responding to. His, his um, stereotypical accusations. So they do know. So it says there was death because man was sinning. 
because man had a conscience, because we're sinners. So it's the law of sin and death. It was an operation before the Old Testament law showed up. God's revealing timeless truths in, in the Mosaic law. Now, some atheists, they will attack the Bible and attack Christians, and they'll say things like this, and, and Christians often fall for this. They say, I don't need the Bible to know about morality. Now, this is interesting, because as a Christian, we don't think you need the Bible to know about morality. In fact, the Bible tells us you don't. Romans 1, you know. Romans 2, you know. It's very clear that you already know about morality because morality is true and God has written it in our hearts. But they'll use this as an attack. Now the Bible, what the Bible does give us is a clarified morality and it clears up some issues and it fixes us where our compass is a little off here and there and that is a good thing. Then in verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So this is um, following up from verse 14, where Adam is called a type of him who is to come. T-Y-P-E, a type. The, the Bible, especially New King James Version here that we're using, it, it has the term type and anti-type. And I should explain those terms since they're coming up here in Romans. Um, a type is a, a representative, and the anti-type is the thing it represents. You might think it would be the other way around, right? But the anti-type is the, is, the, is the thing that corresponds to it. It fulfills the type. So I would think of it as this way. It's like a shadow versus the thing casting the shadow. This is, one represents the other. You, you could look at it this way. You have those, you know, those weird needle things that you put your face in, and then you pull it away, and it's got like your face structure there and you stick your tongue in it and then you wonder like how many people did that before me <laughs> not that i've ever done that. but this thing would be would that be the type or the anti-type what would the that that would actually not that would be the type what would the anti-type be face. my face so adam is the type christ is the anti-type not that I'm Christ is an attempt. Not me, but so Adam is a is a is a figure that's supposed to teach us something about the one who will come. How is Adam this type? Well, he represents all of us. He stands in the place of all mankind making the decision to rebel. It affects every human who's ever born after that. Jesus stands at the cross paying for the decision to rebel. And it affects everybody who will come to him in faith. So we had two representatives. We had Adam, we have Christ. We have the type, we have the antitype. Verse, I'll read verse 15 again now in that context. Um, the free gift is not like the offense. The gift is from Christ, that's salvation. The offense is from Adam, eating of the fruit. For if by the one man's offense, Adam's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one, the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So we have the free gift abounding to us. Now some people don't like this. They don't like Adam being your representative. I get it. You don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> it's just, this is the way it is. Like it or not, that's how it is. And this is really how life works. If, you're, if your parents decided to move from here to Greenland, and then you're born in Greenland, and they move there before you're, well, you live in Greenland, like it or not, you are going to deal with the issues that your parents passed down to you. And we're passed down with this nature. But those who don't like the fact that Adam represented all of us when he brought us all down with him, they don't realize that in the exact same sense, Jesus is able to bring us up with him because he stood in our place. Now, I love the words that the Bible uses about the gospel. Look at these words in verse 15. Free gift, grace, and abounded. I like it. It's a free gift. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. It's a gift. It's given to you. It's grace. It's not earned. It's, it's something he purchased and then just offers to us. And then it abounded because Adam's sin affects all of mankind. That's an awful lot of sin. But Christ's grace abounds, or it's more than enough. It overflows the sin of Adam, the sin of man, the sin of all of us. It more than, is more than enough for us. And then in verse 16, it continues the same theme. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Adam's one offense ends up condemning all of us, partially because we become sinners. But as time goes by, there isn't just one offense, is there? There's lots and lots and lots and lots of offenses. That's why the free gift 
from Christ, which came from many offenses, results in justification. So Adam's a type of Christ, but there's ways in which he's the opposite of Christ. Just like that image, if I push my face into it, it's actually the, like the opposite of my face. You flip it on the inside and you're like, oh, it's like a, it's, it's the opposite impression of my face. So Adam, in a sense, is the opposite of Christ. One man condemning the world. We have one man bringing justification to all the world, whoever would receive him. So it's condemnation contrasted with justification, similarities and dissimilarities in this type. And we can look at other people in the scripture and we can see similarities and dissimilarities. We can see King David having, having being a type of Christ in some ways, but then in other ways, he's the opposite. And so you look at these things, it's very interesting study typologies. So Adam's fall results in condemnation. Jesus, in his sacrifice in justification, that is greater than the condemnation. The one offense of Adam, the many offenses of, of, that Christ paid for. And, and this is interesting because here we come up in verse 16. Did you realize this? We come up to a place where it's countering some false theology from lots of different groups. Um, in Eastern Orthodox beliefs, from, I've been doing a little bit of research into their, their beliefs recently. And my understanding is they think Jesus paid for Adam's sin, but not necessarily for your personal sins. Now, this is definitely the case with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. They do not think Jesus' death paid for everybody's sins. They think it paid for Adam's original sin, but not for your personal sins. This seems quirky, it seems weird, but it's also unbiblical, more importantly. <laughs> Let's read verse 16 again and see if you can catch this. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. If Jesus only died... For what Adam did, it would say the free gift which came from one offense. Because he only paid for the one. But Jesus paid for it all. He paid for all of our sin. And this is attested consistently throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 1.3 says this. Who being the brightness of his glory, speaking of Jesus, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He purged what? Adam's sin from us? No. He purged our sins. Jesus dealt with our sins, not just Adam. In 1 John 1, 7, it says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from Adam's sin. No. It says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All. It's all taken care of through Christ. So I, I like that. that. That's the theology here um, that we need to hold to and, uh, and watch out for people who, who try subtle ways to come up with false gospels. Verse 17, let's keep reading it. It says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now this, this is where we get sin nature, verse 19. Adam's disobedience made many sinners. It didn't just make us... Um, like a stain of sin, but it actually makes us sinners, those who are committing sins. That's, that's the result. We have wills that are no longer submitted ultimately to God. But in Christ, everything that Adam failed in is overcome. It's not death, it's, it's life. It's righteousness, it's not sin. It's justification, it's not condemnation. We're made righteous. Now, some will use the passage I just read, especially... Um, um, let me see, especially the part where it says, there in verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. They'll use that verse to say that universalism is true or that everybody who, who ever lives gets saved because Jesus is Adam, we all die. So in Christ, everyone's saved. That's that's not a true doctrine. It's not biblical um, and it's even in this passage, not only in other passages, we have clear teachings that this is not the case. The story of the sheep and the goats. You know how Jesus was like, and all the sheep will be put on one side, and then there won't be any goats. No, that's not what he told. That's not the parable he told. But 
But no, but even in this passage, even in this passage, it says in verse 17, for if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. So that we, we who receive, the gift is offered to all, but it's only received by those who choose to do so. It's a decision that we make. So it's not universalism. We're all children of Adam, but we are not all in Christ. And so Adam is our representative. That's how you're born. That's how you start. Christ, that's an option. And it's an option we pray that more people will, uh, will take advantage of. So Jesus is that new figurehead. Uh, you can actually read about this in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a parallel passage. I'm not going to get into it tonight for time. But 1 Corinthians 15 verses 47 through 57. That's basically the end of the chapter. It's talking about how Christ is the last Adam. We are the first Adam and the last Adam. And so this, this parallel what we're looking at, guys, is this. God set up the gospel message from before time. From the moment of Adam's creation, this was known, that this was all part of the puzzle coming together. We catch this when you, when you, when you watch certain TV shows where they do this, right? They, they lay little plot developments from the very first moments of the very first episodes that come to play later on in later seasons. And then you're like, wow, this was all part of one big story. And that's exactly what we see. In, uh, that God has done with real life in Adam and in Christ. So this is why Jesus says you have to be born again. This is why he tells him you have to deny yourself and take up your cross because we're sinners by nature and this thing has to change. Like something's wrong with me. <laughs> something's wrong with me. And it is. Something is wrong. And those who, who seek to deny it, um, they waste their time. Instead, how about let's have the solution through Jesus. Verse 20. It says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So now he's bringing the law back into the picture. He keeps doing this in Romans. Have you noticed that? He keeps talking about the purpose of the Old Testament law, and he's, he's sort of pointing out different functions and reasons for that law. Here he's pointing out that the law entered, why? So that the offense might abound so that sin would become more sinful. That's why the law entered. It didn't enter so that people could become righteous by obeying it. It entered to expose sin for what it is. Have you felt that? Have you, have you read in the scriptures and you find yourself going, man, that's me. I've done that. I've done that. I'm in trouble. Like in Josiah's time, when they find the book of the law in the temple and then he reads it and he's like, if I can paraphrase, oh, crud. I'm in so much trouble right now. We have not been doing these things. There's curses that are upon us because we've been rebelling against God. And all of a sudden, the offense abounded. He's aware, wow, we've really been doing bad. This is bad news. That's why the law entered, because it drives us to Christ. It drives us to our knees. It shows us our sin. The more you know, the more it plagues you that you have not done what is right. The law puts you on, on your knees, and that's a good awareness. This is not a bad thing. This is a healthy thing because it leads us to grace. It leads us to Christ. Some people are tempted to downplay sin, even as Christians. They feel like they have to downplay sin. They call it mistakes. I think it's interesting sometimes as a youth pastor, I'll hear parents talk about their kids. And sometimes their kids who are probably are not, are probably are not saved. I don't know for sure, but I'm, if I had to guess, I'd say they probably weren't saved. Um, and then a parent's like, but they're deep down, you know, she's good deep down. Deep down, he's really good, though. Deep down, he's really good. And I'm just like, do you think any of us are really good? <laughs> deep down, <laughs> Man, it's, it's Christ changing me, born again, renewed in him. This is what brings the goodness into my life. This is what changes my character. We need to be biblical about our theology or else you won't handle things right. When your kid has serious problems and serious issues, you'll just blow it over like it's no big deal. Because somewhere underneath all of the rebellion I'm seeing, there's a core of wonderfulness that I remember from when they were an infant and they grabbed my finger with their whole hand. And so they must really be good. But rather, God's like, no, you're not, but I love you anyway. You're not good, but I'll save you anyhow. And let's let that law come in and let it, let it, real, let it cause us to realize that, that the offense is abounded. But, but, I love it in verse 20, you know this verse, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Have you felt your sin abound? Have you been like, oh man, it's too much. 
I've sinned too much. I can't be forgiven. Oh, but grace abounded much more. No matter how much your sin has overflown, grace overflows more. I'm amazed. This is, the Bible's extreme. It's extreme about the sin of man, and it is extreme about the grace of God. And we should be too. I love this. So next week we're going to be talking about, we're going to do Romans 6, and it's going to talk about um, the consequences of this. When you talk about wicked, sinful man, and oh, but grace just floods over them, does this mean it's okay to sin? Does this mean that we can just go on with our lives of sinning? No, we're talking about being born again. We're talking about a new life. We're talking about how this changes us and what new life we're called to. That's in Romans 6. He's going to get into that. So we're really getting into sort of the Christian life now, um, which, is, which is neat stuff. And Romans 6 is, it is powerful stuff. It is powerful stuff. It's the kind of things you read and you're like, I should probably really trust this. I should probably really take this seriously because it will change it will change the way I view my life and I view my own struggles. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the enlightenment to our hearts and our minds. We thank you, Lord, that you, you can show us the sinfulness of man, but without causing us to hate, <laughs> to hate each other, but instead to realize that it causes us to love you and to love your grace. Help us, Lord, we pray, to love our enemies, to realize that, that we're like them, that we're like them to know that you loved us anyway. Help us to love people whether they earn it or not, Lord. Help us to extend the grace of Christ that we've received to others and to see how great this grace has been to us. And may we rejoice in you, have joy in you, not in our performance, not in our good deeds, not in anything that's within us, Lord, but everything that is within you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You are my